and welcome to this special episode of Watch No Evil. This is Matt. And this is Zach. And in a continuation of our sequel series that began with our very first film and its follow-up, The Thing, today we're going to be taking a look at one of our second films and also one of our mutual favorites, The Conjuring 2, again directed by the magnanimous James Wan and starring Ed and Lorraine Warren, played by Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga. And everyone else. Everyone else is there, but they're all kind of incidental. Uh, Zach, the first <laughs> question that comes up when you look up this movie on Google is, is Conjuring 2 horror? Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, I Why? <laughs> Why? Uh, because it contains all the facets of the genre we know as horror. <laughs> like, and what? What genre facets are necessary for something to be classified as horror? Scary. <laughs> scary. Scary. And what in this suspense. movie would you consider to be scary? There's a lot of jump scares, which I think one, like, actually got me. And Val and I, like, by the end of this, we weren't sure if we'd actually seen this movie before. <laughs> like, mm. I I feel like I have. Either I have and I forgot everything about it, or this was truly the first time that I saw it. Which, if, if I have seen it before, I was pleasantly surprised by enjoying it more this time, I guess. Um, it's mm. a much better movie than I had previously thought. So a, a reacquaintance with the unknown, it seems, that you've had. Yeah. Almost like deja vu in a sense. Oh, God. (laughs) No. So, Zach, the main antagonist of the course of the movie is a man slash demon thing dressed up as a nun named Valak. Now, you're fairly familiar with the church and all of the, the requisite trauma that comes with that. How did seeing this representation of it on screen make you feel? Why am I getting interviewed right now? (laughs) Answer the question. (laughs) Uh, also, it's not a man. Yes. It's just va- it's just Valak, like or Valak or whatever, however you say it. it which Gulak? Nope, that's not a Gulag. Ku- Got- goulash. <laughs> <laughs> no, goulash is the is the dish, and Gulak was the residence hall at Illinois Wesleyan University. <laughs> yeah, I I'm not sure you heard what I said, but I'm not gonna repeat it. I heard what you said. Okay. I'm just not gonna repeat it. Okay. <laughs> but uh, so this movie reminded you of World War Two. It. I can see it. Explain. Well, that's a better question than, is it horror? (laughs) So. What is this bit that I'm doing? All right, I'm breaking character. Yeah, I don't know. You got to stop. It's it's (laughs) making me very uncomfortable. (laughs) The thing about the horror aspects of this film is, yes, that there is these jump scares. What I like about this film is that it does take horror in a little bit of a different frame, especially because the majority of this movie, again, takes place kind of in daylight. And this is something that we actually talked about with the previous Conjuring movie, where a lot of the scary stuff happens at night, but there's a lot of the plot wrapped into the daytime. With this, a lot of the actual horror material takes place during the daytime, and it's very, very visible. 
that's a big thing about horror movies is they like to kind of obscure a lot of what is actually scary, either thematically or through lighting and set design. But in this movie, they really approach a lot of those elements in a very visible and, and forward way. So for example, when the young girl is sitting in the chair and the camera starts to blur the field of depth so that we really just see Ed Warren and her in the background, her visage sort of turns into this creepy old man. Mm-hmm. Like, it's very in your face, and yeah. we get to see that transformation actually happen. As opposed to a lesser movie, which would have just, like, had either a little bit more of the shock value of that transformation, or they would have engaged with it by never showing you it at all. Yeah, I, I feel like a different director or film would have just like had her like morph into it or they would have like had him just like kind of standing behind her or something or whatever. And she does describe when Bill takes her over as like he's standing behind her and like speaking through her. But I liked this this moment a lot. And I think that the cinematography in this movie is like outstanding in the way that like you expect the precedent that the first Conjuring movie set and that it's really high quality production, uh, really high quality acting and all that. But I think both the set design and the cinematography in this one really took a step forward from the first movie. Yeah, for sure. And I, I say that like there are a lot of great scenes that happen in the first movie, but there are a lot of good scenes that are follow-ups and even improvements in this movie. And the scene with Janet in the chair morphing into Bill is such an impressive visual. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things that this movie does well is the sort of visual quality and that comes with a lot of these set locations, right? That's a huge thing. And this movie's another bottle, right? We always always mentioned the bottle film, the style of filmography, where everything takes place in one area. This movie does a good job at making that area dynamic because we can kind of break down the horror into a couple of key areas, such as the living room, the old bedroom that is now covered in crucifixes on the wall, and then the hallway with the circus tent. And the basement, the flooded basement, which does, doesn't does get as much of a spotlight. But yeah, I think it, it does feel very self-contained. Like, yes, they go and stay at the neighbor's house, but like because of the situation that they're in, which I'm sure we'll touch on more later, they cannot just leave, right? That's kind of the crux of a lot of these like haunting movies is oh why don't we just leave the house because that's the the bill character is is saying this is my house well they can't leave because they don't have money the the father left the mother's just kind of like struggling to raise her kids and get by like the best option they have is staying at the neighbors across the street so i think it does yeah it, it does give you a reason for the bottle as well, which is really important because it's like as a skeptical viewer and any any horror ha- kind of has to have a bit of skepticism in them because of the nature of the genre. Yeah, I mean, you have to ask these questions, right? You have to say, well, like, why, why did they make this choice with the plot? Well, they give you reasons in this one. Yeah, it never actually asks them to leave their home because we interpret all of the reasons and we're told all of the reasons very early on because she even says they don't have the money for basic uh, amenities and specifically it mentions biscuits but obviously that's kind of symbolic of the overarching structure of the film which is they don't have money for this they don't have the money and privilege of being able to move and in that way it is kind of a statement on 
a couple of interesting social and status issues that are going on, especially uh, when you start to consider things like squatters' rights and property ownership in the UK, and this is also something that goes on in America, who is really in charge of the land and of the area, and what kind of recourse do people who are already in positions of poverty have to deal with? Janet is sort of the representation of this younger generation that is now being placed at stake because of an older generation that has made essentially housing impossible for a lot of people unless you are brought into that property ownership through some sort of familial structure. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to bring up because also like the UK during this time in history, the the youth, like we kind of get a taste of this at the beginning, like we get the Clash song as like, you know, we kind of get introduced to the characters. We get Janet getting caught with a cigarette, even though she wasn't actually smoking it. And it's like this wave of like counterculture that we see in the UK during this time, possibly because of the financial and, you know, cultural community implications that you already mentioned. Yeah, the punk revolution was going on. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge sort of thing in this movie. And it's actually interesting because a lot of the things that were going on that were dealing with punk, uh, interestingly, punk and uh, the initial beginnings of rap music have a lot of overlap. There's a book by um, Dick Hebdiga called Subcultures, which talks about the punk scene, but it also talks about the influx of early reggae music and specifically dub music was a pre- which was a precursor to rap and the rap artists or the the predecessors to rap artists and the punk artists were sort of overlapping in the way that they would reject authority and in this we actually have something of a, an authority to reject but mm-hmm. in in two kind of ways which is bill's authority in that he claims ownership of the house, but then also the Catholic Church, which is the stand-in for an invisible governmental structure that has put limitations on the actual family in being able to get the help that they need. Right, and Ed and Lorraine end up kind of also taking on those personal traits of, you know, defying the authority because they do like, yes, we need actual physical evidence from the church and they're about to leave. But then they're like, oh, I have a feeling and they kind of put some things together and they basically convince themselves to stay a second time. Um, so it's kind of a cool thing. But also we get a lot of like skepticism and hypocrisy from the adults in this movie who represent that later generation. Like when Janet and her friend are caught with this cigarette, she's like, oh, like you can't be smoking at your age. And she like shoes them away. And then she like takes a drag off the cigarette. And then Janet goes home. Her mom is currently smoking a cigarette when she gets home from school. And then she gets scolded about being caught with a cigarette. And so it's like this challenge of really kind of like an unfounded authority also kind of takes center stage in specifically regarding Janet's character, because then nobody believes her about the hauntings at first. Right. So it's like, oh, this this punk, you, you know, these these kids are trying, always trying to mess with adults and they're like always trying to, you know, stick to the man and, okay, well, she's faking it, you know, even though it's widely accepted that the Enfield hauntings, which were a real thing, right? These are all based off like actual hauntings that happened in history, real families, real people. It's thought that the Enfield hauntings were very, very faked <laughs> for the publicity. But that aside, for the purposes of this movie, I think it's a really interesting theme to roll with. Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of 
runs into that issue of the unconvincing nature of the evidence, but it touches on the entrance of the foreigner into the home, right? Mm. As the uh, the foreigner as skeptic, because at the beginning of the movie, we see that chair slide across the room, yeah, right? Like, the we police know. see it. <laughs> It's really obvious that there's something going on. And then it's really fascinating that once the Americans get there, they spend all of this time trying to undo all of that work to convince the audience that it was real. It's like they're going through and saying, yeah, we know what we told you before, but look now. See that this is actually her committing all of these things. And it's simply... Uh, a way to sort of deflect responsibility and deflect authority and deflect answers because they get the opportunity to say your lived experience does not align with our seen experience. Right. I find it really cool with with how they kind of escalate the, I want to say magnitude, but that's not really the right word. They escalate kind of the stakes of the demon themselves, like it's clear that Valak is like a higher, more crafty kind of demon than Bathsheba was because... Smarty pants, yeah. Yeah, it, and like, I think people liked Valak so much and the image of the nun, it's like, okay, then they're going to make the nun and the nun too, or, you know, this kind of like branch of the franchise. But, you know, it, it is this like possessionception, as I like to call it, like where he is possessing a spirit that is Bill, Bill Wilkins, presenting himself in that way. But it goes a layer deeper because he's really, or it, I don't know what to call that, like it's he or it, let's go with he. He is like really obvious and present in front of the family. And he's really careful about that. Like he, he does kind of present himself to the cops there too, but like, you know, they don't have <laughs> authority when it comes to like the Catholic church and helping out in that way. So it's like, he, he's really obvious in front of the family really early on in the movie too so it like kind of cements that audience expectation like okay well you know this demon is just like thinks thinks he's above it all you know whatever and then later on kind of plays with that expectation like okay well why why like we i feel like that's almost part of the horror because like if this was happening to me like i would need help right but how do i convince these people when the demon's very, very careful about how they just torment me and my family. It does also lead to a problem that I have with this movie and that it's just too long. <laughs> like it doesn't yeah. it doesn't have to be that long. I think that they really tried to follow the same formula of the first movie in that they introduce a seemingly unrelated case at the very beginning. Uh, in this case, it was the other family with um, the, the Amityville. Um, stuff and it's like okay at first you think it's gonna be this one and then it's actually the Enfield hauntings and it's like kind of cool like I almost want a movie about the Amityville case even though it seemed like it was pretty cut and dry but um there are so many movies about the Amityville case yeah exactly and it's like yeah it'd be kind of fun to see their version of it but like they have so much else to do and you know that was the same in the first movie I forget what case they... Oh, they introduced the... the Annabelle. Yeah, well, they introduced Annabelle at the beginning, and then they went to the Perone family with Bathsheba. And it's like, okay, you follow the same formula. You don't have to do that. And I think, I believe, I've only seen the third one once because it's pretty much brand new, but I believe they stuck with it for the third movie as well, um, that introducing kind of like 
that yeah it's that the idea. it's the exorcism of of david glutzel in the in the third one at right the beginning. right okay yeah and they're like some really cool shots that come out of that but it's just not really necessary it kind of introduces these themes of like skepticism and like the family unit kind of being shattered in a way by these demonic presences or the other way around uh shattered family being almost like not welcoming but like susceptible to this Mm -hmm. this demonic presence as they explain it but it's just that and there's like the whole elvis impersonation scene doesn't really need to happen like yeah we get there's like some emotional connection between these two families they sympathize they empathize they really do believe these people and they're trying to like do what they can in the moment to like cheer them up because that helps with demons it never really works though in any of these movies so like Mm -hmm. whatever um that could have been cut just some of the some of the stuff in the middle like in, in not in the middle sorry the middle is very important in the beginning they could have just shown up at the beginning they could have shown up at the family's house and we could have been like all right we know what's going on we saw the first movie that's just my complaint i think it could have easily you could have easily knock 20 minutes out and it would have been a oh, better sure. better movie for it. I have similar thoughts. I think that the thing about the singing that kind of bugs me a little bit is first of all the choice of song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? It's wise men say um whatever the only fools rush in yeah only fools rush in okay so what happens to ed uh at the very end he rushes in too soon rushes in that's the whole thing and then there's the shall i stay would it be a sin which is all about them actually staying but i can't help falling in love with you is kind of a reference to the growing sentimental attachment that the warrens have to this family Right, so it's it's almost trying too hard to be relevant to the actual story, but it doesn't do a lot. And they have this whole section that is devoted to talking about how their father that left loved music, and Ed, by playing for them, kind of becomes a pseudo-father figure, which doesn't make sense. Ed has children, and he's leaving them after this. The The use of the, the missing father as a device, it feels too hard like they tried to make that meaningful to the rest of the plot i think it is i think it's kind of incidental i don't think it's really important the only thing that it drives is that they now don't have the money to financially sustain a move well so there's actually a deleted scene where ed and lorraine are they're kind of just talking with peggy and this psychologist gross is his last mm-hmm. name, who is, who is actually a real person who actually like believed in this family and like thought that it was a legitimate case. In the scene, Ed, Ed is kind of talking about how Janet is like of this pubescent age, this tumultuous time in her life, she, lack of a fa- father figure, financial troubles in the home that are very apparent. The kids like also kind of having these bullies at school. So he's like, yeah, a lot of these things, they, you know, it, kids need attention for it and they, you know, sometimes seek out or yeah seek out this attention through these means that we see her you know behaving (laughs) like she's possessed and that is usually a reason why it's like faked and he's kind of like justifying it that way i kind of wish that they had kept that in the movie and like deleted some other scenes (laughs) instead like i already said because i think that that is important to acknowledge in this movie of Mm -hmm. like you know since we have that theme of skepticism and like the the theme of also counterculture of like, you know, that's also kind of a, that 
participation in that culture is also kind of a cry for attention for some. I feel like it's a really important message to have in the movie. And it's maybe they thought it was too obvious to go go ahead and like say it out loud. I don't know. It very well could have been just too much for them to outright say, because I think that some of this movie tries to live in subtlety. And then sometimes they're a little bit more blunt with how they address social issues. And I don't know if that's a social issue that they really cared enough to tackle about forwardly. Yeah. On that note, though, Maurice Gross looks exactly like the guy that played yeah. him. They did a great job with they casting really, him. That is believable. It, the other thing about this movie, I really love the Crooked Man mm-hmm. as a character. It was not implemented effectively in the movie because it did not have the time or the relevance to the actual plot line to cement itself as fully necessary. Yeah. It felt like just another scare. I completely agree. And I don't... I almost wonder if they're trying to make you question whether the Crooked Man is even real or not, because there is that moment when he first actually reveals himself to Billy in the neighbor's house. You know, they introduce the whole dog with the bell asking to go out, and you know, then the bell rings in the middle of the night, and Billy goes to check it out. And and then they kind of show, like, Janet, because, like, Janet and Billy kind of had this thing with the, that little, like, carousel toy that the yeah. Crooked Man, quote-unquote, comes out of. It's and, a zoetrope. Is that, is that what it's called? I've never actually... Yeah, it's- I love those. They're really cool. So it's an ancient animation toy. Like, that's the whole thing. Uh, do you remember those, like, viewfinder? They were the glasses that you look through oh, and yeah. you click through the pictures? Yeah. It's essentially the same technology as that, except what they would do is you would take these strips of paper and you would put the strip of paper into this uh, circle so that it would fit in the circle. And then when you spin it, it would make it be like an early animation so each of the little sections are divided into essentially cells. I think that that's actually a really cool thing because it's this idea of something animating and actually coming out of the zoetrope and becoming real life. They do an episode on a zoetrope in Warehouse 13 that is one of my favorite episodes of TV. Well, it's actually kind of cool that that's brought up because it's almost like foyerism in a way. Yeah. You know, think about like movies are exactly like that, where there's like that part of your vision, a very, very brief, basically immeasurable moment that is between frames, right? For movies. But on this zoetrope, it's like this large section that <laughs> is between those little like viewing holes, right? So it's kind of it's kind of cool in that when you, when you kind of compare the two. But anyways, this the crooked man comes out of the zoetrope, whatever. I feel like, especially with the, this theme of skepticism that they're trying to make you feel like the Crooked Man isn't even actually real. It's because they have this toy, Janet and Billy kind of like have this thing that they do, the song that they kind of sing with the toy. And then Janet is kind of shown as like, you know, when, when Billy gets scared, she's like the one that is like representative of the Crooked Man. She's kind of like perverting the song that they usually sing together. And that to me was like, oh, he he's like kind of seeing her as like the boogeyman, you know, the proverbial boogeyman in this case, because like, you know, she also says, oh, everyone's scared of me. And like Billy's just, he's the youngest. He, you know, he gets bullied at school. Like it just seems like that's what that was. And I almost wish that that's what they would have gone with. But instead they went with the, 
this they underutilized this like super cool demon that had no place in this movie. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Didn't have a place in this movie, but it's so interesting and it's also really kind of a telling that at the end of the movie the artifact that they take with them from the house is the zoetrope. I wonder if he's going to come back. I would imagine that he has to, but the thing is, like, what's the purpose of taking the zoetrope? Why did they take that from them? Well, because that that's the artifact. Like, that's where one of the demons comes out of. Like, that he's, he's possessed that object. Yeah. They only take objects, right? They can't, you know, like, they can't take anything that Valak is tied to, right? Because he's not really, like, tied to anything. Well, that's the thing, though. Valak shows up in the painting because they end up taking the painting and putting the painting in the locked room with the Annabelle doll. Did they? Yeah. Oh, I didn't notice that. Maybe just, you know, to be safe. (laughs) Yeah, to be safe. Well, too, I think that it kind of goes along with the idea that the Crooked Man is a real thing, but they gave the Crooked Man the coolest sequence in the film, Mm -hmm. which is when he comes out of the, yeah, when he comes out of the tent and then breaks into the wall and then travels through the wall and it's cracking and shattering. It's so cool. Why did Valak not do that? Right. That, Why was... I mean, the painting thing was cool when Valak, like, the, the sh- they show, like, the shadow of, like, the nun walking, like, almost, like, behind the wall. Yeah. And then it comes out of the painting. That that was super cool. But, yeah, the the crack thing was also super cool. It's like, this movie could have been two movies. Like, that's, that's what I'm saying. It's yeah. too long. If we could just have something with, like, the Crooked Man, that would have been cool. Yeah. The sheer destructive power of that moment, right? it's so much better than anything Valak actually physically does. Right, like... Besides appearing. Like, what's the Crooked Man been doing this whole time? Like, why didn't we get more of that? That would have been super yeah, cool. Yeah, he just kind of, like, hangs out. It's like he comes out and he's like, oh, okay, you got this covered. Yeah, right? also, Pull like... Pull it back. Do demons not have, like, turf wars? Like... <laughs> Why are there so many demons in this house? Yeah. Like, maybe they do have turf wars. Is that what was going on? There's an interesting thought about the Crooked Man. I did just like a little bit. I just did the like very basic Wikipedia lookup of the Crooked Man, which apparently he is supposed to be a real person from uh, the 1840s. And it's supposed to reference General Alexander Leslie, who signed a covenant securing religious and political freedom for Scotland. And the crooked style that is mentioned in the song, he found a crooked sixpence against a crooked style is supposed to be the alliance between the English and Scottish parliaments. Okay. Which I think is an interesting idea. Yeah, that's something they definitely could have gone into more. Not in this movie, but a different movie. Like, give us... I don't know. It's just... It, I feel like they're taking a leaf out of, like, the Marvel book. They're like, we got, you know, they're always trying to jam-pack these movies with as many superheroes as they can think of. Well, let's do that with demons. And it just doesn't work in the same way, right? More superheroes on the screen at the same time, fighting each other, whatever. That's cool because superheroes are not usually of paranormal nature. <laughs> this yeah. this doesn't, just doesn't work because you have the paranormal entities interacting with, you know, con- natural concrete natural entities. And, like, that, that interaction is what drives the plot forward what what drives the action forward and the fear in this case Mm -hmm. 
it just it just doesn't have as as much of an effect. I two I can deal with, you know, Valak and Bill because that's kind of necessary yeah. for like the twist of the movie. That's fine, but yeah, it's just it's just yeah, a little ghost too and much. demon working together, and then other demon and. The whole thing with Valak is Valak does appear in the lesser the lesser key of Solomon, right. which we've referenced on this podcast before. Mm-hmm. It was also again played by Joseph Bashara. Yeah, it's the same same person, same demon as in the Nun. Um, yes, and I think different actor in the Nun. Yeah, it, it's kind of weird that we're like going back because <laughs> th- this one is like The Conjuring Two is really important to the franchise overall because it picks up where the first one left off. It carries the same formula. It kind of conveys expectation for the rest of the franchise moving forward. But also it does bridge this gap between... Um, the Conjuring and the Nun and the Annabelle series. Right. It, it They do a lot of work at the beginning of this franchise in you know, developing that work, making the... Like, planting the seeds that end up being yeah. the different branches. This, this metaphor is falling apart really quickly. But being... The CCU. Yeah, sure. <laughs> It's this, the Conjuring Cinematic Universe. You know, they, they introduce a lot of, like, what ends up being the different, like, sub-franchises or branches of the Conjuring Universe in this movie, in the first movie. Like, you know, we get the Annabelle, we get the Nun in this one, and it just kind of proliferates from there. And I think that, you know, we've done the Nun before, we've done the Conjuring before. We need to do an Annabelle soon, soon enough. Maybe we can do that as a sequel, too. James Wan just does such a good job of tying these things together in yes. in a way, and that, that falls apart later <laughs> a, a bit. I think The Nun does serve as like a really good origin story. <laughs> this is kind of a stupid one-off thing that I just found very endearing is that when Ed is going into that like flooded basement to go fix the washing machine that's flooding the basement, and you get like some of that motion in the water, you see Bill's ghost figure, whatever, mm-hmm. coming towards Ed, and then Peggy, the mother, gets mm-hmm. concerned, and actually that comes in, she's like, Ed, like, he's behind you. And she was actually the target the whole time. I, I think that's another part where like Valak playing Bill pulls off this act really convincingly, because... Valak wants Ed, right? Valak wants Ed to die because he's the, you know, he's the, um... Ed is the exorcist. Yeah, sure. The exorcist. He's the religious one. He is, you know, since Valak is the defiler, doesn't really like religious people. So that, Ed is his target. But since he's playing Bill in this case, he's got to go after Peggy. And it's still in that point in the movie where it's like, okay, well, that makes more sense. It wouldn't make as much sense if he went after Ed. And during this, you see, like, some motion in the water, and it does this little, like, chromatic da-da in the soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, just, like, that's what we kind of, I don't think they're doing it as a reference to Jaws. It's just kind of, like, that is a mental, or that is an auditory cue to us yes. that there is something in the water. And it's just yes. kind of, like, cemented itself in our culture, and that is, like, and in our minds as well. So I think that was a really cool moment. Super cool movie. It's very important to the franchise. I think that it was made very thoughtfully, except for with the inclusion of too, too many elements that were just not necessary, really, for the overall. This story. is my go-to. This is my go-to of the Conjuring series. This is the one that I watched the most. That's 
crazy because I usually watch the first one. I watched this one a lot. I watched this one a lot when I was home during that October in 2016. Man, 2016 was a rough year. Yeah. How many bones out of 10? How many bones? Hmm. Nine bones? Yeah, I would I would give it a nine. Nine bones. I accept, I accept that answer. Yeah, it, this one gets a lot of hate for being just like a kind of a recreation of the first one, but I... It's still a good film. I disagree. It, like I said, it's made very thoughtfully. Like, you can't can't tear something apart that was made this thoughtfully. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this special episode of Watch No Evil. This is Matt. And this is Zach. And remember, if the family across the street from you who's recently had their father walk away needs help because of some paranormal entity possessing the second youngest child, it's none of your business. <laughs> but uh, get none. That was... The setup was like... <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> I was like where's he going with this